This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we are joined by Ari Wallach from Longpath. Ari is a futurist and social system strategist, although he hates the term futurist, <laughs> and we're going to get him to talk about why. And he is part of and founded an organization that's very interested in developing a way forward for the very, very long term. So Winning Slowly listeners, you might be like, oh yeah, that's why they want to interview him because like that's what they do. <laughs> Correct. Here. Yeah, actually my, organ- my organization only exists to feed this podcast. We actually <laughs> fold up and go away. When this, is, this, is, this is all just totally fake just for yep. the listeners to know. We, yep. we only exist because you guys had a hole to fill. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really important that we keep feeding you content, dear listeners. And so we've invented an Ari Wallach <laughs> and a long path just so you could have together some by a very prestigious New York City uh, public relations firm. So, but I'm here. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so we're gonna start with a basic question to to get the groundwork going. So Ari, uh, what is Long Path? So about uh, for the past decade, I was running a company called Synthesis Corp. We were in New York, where the PR firm is located that we talked about earlier, um, Washington, D.C., and Geneva. And what we were doing is we were basically building skunk works or innovation labs um, around the world for very large organizations, Volkswagen, United Nations. We did work with the State Department, a whole a bunch of folks. And what that basically meant to build a skunk works that, that's based in foresight and kind of future thinking is that we wouldn't necessarily help them develop their next product, but really to think about their business model, the underlying what is it that they do as opposed to what is it that they make right now. So an example of that is we worked with um, – I'm sure my non-disclosure agreement has expired by now, but we worked with Volkswagen, or, or not, and this is the beginning of a long litigation. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. So, but I'll, I'll be sure to send the bills to you guys. Uh, we worked with Volkswagen. Oh, yeah, we'll foot it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's just Volkswagen, small company. Um, and so they, they came to us. They spend about $10 billion a year on, on R&D and innovation. But the reality is we're seeing car sales kind of – Drop in North America and the long-term trend lines, even in even in China, which is a which is actually a growing market, 10, 10, 15 years, that just kind of goes away for environmental, public policy, a whole host of other reasons. So the question is, what, what would Volkswagen become in the year 2030 if they're quote unquote not just selling cars, which 90% of the time just sit there in a parking lot? So we help them think about their underlying business model and what that resulted in was uh, it, it, at their foresight innovation lab called The Garage was the development of an autonomous electric bus that works kind of like a cross between Uber and your, and your local city bus. So that's the kind of work that we were doing for a really long time. And what, what happened over time, though, was as I started meeting with more and more clients, um, they would say, great, you know, we, we hear you're a, a futurist, and we'll come back to why I don't like that term in a second, <laughs> and, and, and your company is amazing, we've heard all these wonderful things, and we want to talk about the, the far futures. And so that would get me very excited, and I would, you know, take the call or jump on a plane, and we talk about the next 20, 30 years. But then over time, what started happening was the time horizon about the future got smaller and smaller. And then a couple of years ago, I was with a, a Fortune 20 CEO and, and his staff, and they're like, we love what you do. We, we want to talk about the future. We want to talk about the next six months. And I kind of, you know, there was like a pause and I was waiting for everyone to start laughing and no one laughed. That really was the far future because it went beyond the quarterly cycle. <laughs> right. um, 
And, and that con- and that's a conversation, by the way, that not just not with just Fortune, you know, twenty companies. I was having that with heads of foundations, with politicians. I, I'd been involved in presidential politics for a long time. I was having that with just about anyone who's in charge of making major decisions. Um, they kept bringing up the the fact that for them, what was thinking about the far tomorrow was maybe a couple of years at the most, and. What I saw was this kind of like short termism has always been with us. It's a very kind of buzzy term. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, it's always been with us. But it seemed like we were going into a kind of epidemic form of it. Uh, and I was trying to figure out where that was coming from. Was it, was it systems? Was it the human? Was it organizational? Where was it coming from? So I, I wrote a just kind of a, a, a short essay called Forget Short Termism. It's time to think long path. Because one of the things I, I believe is sometimes. To really wrap your head around a problem, you have to you have to name it, and you also have to name the solution. So we had something for short termism, and long termism didn't make sense because what long termism does, um, as a as a, almost as a as an ontology, it means you're extrapolating today into tomorrow, which might have made sense let's say 200 years ago, when my life was not that different from my father's and my sons wouldn't be that different than mine, right? So you, you mm-hmm. take the point where you are right now and you just project out temporally, but there's no change. And change is so unbelievably dramatic and rapid today. And we know this, we see this obviously in technology, we also see this in in, in culture as well, um, that it's going to be kind of a wandering way to get to wherever we want to get to, right? It's going to be a path. It reminded the J.R. Tolkien, like not all who wander are lost, right? And so I was going with these clients and they were saying, well, you know, it has to be a straight line. It has to be a vector from here to the future, you know, from here to the monorails, (laughs) the jetpacks. And so that's not the way it works. And especially that's not the way it works right now because we're having these collisions between all these different realms that are happening at once. Um, we actually helped create kind of the strategic uh, plan slash skunk works for one of the oldest seminaries in the U.S., Auburn Theological Seminary in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And part of part of that project was was me giving a, a talk um, to some folks I assembled, and we we're really talking about. I said, "Look, the fact is, there's an interplay even from in terms of theology and how people connect with with higher realms of spirituality, and how what's happening in other parts of culture, their lives map on to the expectation of those connections. So what that means is, if you have a generation like our parents who grew up under IBM, who grew up under hierarchical organizations, the idea that between, let's say, you and God, there'd be multiple folks above you in the chain of command, as it were, totally makes sense. But if you grow up digitally native on the internet, where there is no direct route between zeros and ones and packets between you and the final destination, it can go multiple different ways, you start to realize there are multiple different ways of getting somewhere. So that that's the that's the 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 path part of long path. What it is inherently is uh, a methodology for thinking about the futures that we want, the far futures, and how do we get there? And what are the kind of things that we have to cultivate within ourselves, within organizations, and society at large to be able to get to the long term? Um, so long path, think of it as a, we say a method, but to use kind of common parlance, it's it's really a technology in the same way that religion is a technology, right? It's a technology for transformation. It's for, for transforming humans from 
what we are born as, which are these uh, amazing biological beings. But the fact of the matter is, if you take a five-year-old today, which I can do because I have a five-year-old boy, <laughs> and you take a five-year-old from 80,000 years ago, more or less biologically, they are the same. I would actually argue most five-year-olds 80,000 years ago are probably even in better shape than a five-year-old today <laughs> that's true. behind a desk and in a classroom all day. Yep. Um, at least they're swinging from, you know, for, not even swinging, but just like running and hunting and, and doing human homo sapien type things. Um, so a lot of that is this, te- this technology and methodology that is not only meant to get us too far to Mars, but help us think about what those should be within an ethical way. How do we level up as humans to get there? And importantly, um, and this is why I have issues with the idea of uh, the, the term futurist, because futurist is always about projecting forward. But the fact of the matter is th- this idea that the future and the present are the only thing in dialogue, I think, is false, because it's really the past, mm-hmm. present, and future. And, yeah, we're and so on that. If, if there was a term, there, there's no term for this, but you guys are really smart, so there probably is a term, and we just don't know <laughs> it. This, so you're going to tell me I'm going to learn something a lot right now. But there's this... this this historio presenty futury thing. That's what I'm interested in, right? Is yeah. this kind of this interlocking chain. And and I and I say this um in my TED talk, which you should go, everyone listening should go watch immediately. Pause, go watch it and come back. Okay, welcome back. <laughs> we'll, we'll link and, it in the show notes. Yeah, so. but I, I gave a pause, so now they, they can come back to it. Um so we're catching back up. Is at least in the West, I would say going back a couple hundred years, but really going back a couple of thousand years, um, this idea of the good life is very much based on your own individual life, like Ari's birth to death, mm-hmm. where in everywhere else on the planet, every other ecosystem, be it biological or even non-biological, there's a past, present, and future, right? Uh, and there's a linkage between generations that we become, uh, we're almost narcissistic around our desire to only think about the only thing that matters is my own birth, that unit of time from my own birth to death. And so the other part of long path, part of that technology, if you will, is acknowledging these paths and really even these deep paths. And of course, we we see this f- from ethics going back to you know, Plato, Aristotle. I mean, this is this has always been with us, but now we ha- but now even in epigenetics, right? We see this in the grandchildren of people who are in the Holocaust or in slavery. We actually see in the maternal mitochondrial, you know, DNA, actual changes that happen. So the past is with us, obviously, in the present and carries us into the future. And unfortunately, this idea of the, this, this, this term of the, this term of futurists uh, often discounts the past. And so long path is really this way of thinking about how do organizations and society plan, think about and get to those long term futures. Mm-hmm. I also don't have a term for that particular thing. I I did have an encounter with a book a little while back that talked about it in the Christian tradition of being able to faithfully extend the existing tradition. And I think there's a point of analogy there of being able to faithfully build on those things that have been gifted to us by the people who came before us and to have a regard for the people who came before us and to learn from the people who came before us while continuing to say, and they did not get all the way even necessarily that they wanted along the way. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And they made some and they made some mistakes, yeah, by the way, did. right? Because sometimes it's just like there's this we we we're in this false binary. It's either high regard for the past 
and you have to accept all the terrible things that also went along with that. <laughs> right. Or toss it all out. Or toss, you know, toss it all out. And it's like, that is just, again, this is where kind of binary thinking, especially around kind of historical influence that the individual as well as collective uh, gets us into a lot of problems. Yeah. So picking up from that theme, then, what are some of those long path ideas for how we envision growing forward into the future while maintaining those roots to the past? Can you expand on uh, that, wait, tease that out? But before, before we get there, there are some listeners that are like, wait, have you not studied German philosophy? Because <laughs> the German philosophers have things to say about this. Um, so there are some uh, late 1800s and early 19th century German philosophers who've thought a lot about this. Unfortunately, because Germans don't come up with short words for things, there is no short phrase of what you're actually trying to talk about. But So I, I mentioned my company earlier earlier, uh, that company that I ran successfully for a while was was called Synthesis Corp. So I I, I came up as Hegelian, as a Frankfurt schooler at at UC Berkeley. Oh, there you are. Yep. So, so the, you didn't ask, but I'll, but I'll go there. Um, (laughs) Please let me, so like, you know, I, I came up obviously not under them because they, they had long since passed, but under Adorno and Horkenheimer, right. With a touch of Heidegger and, and kind of ended my studies at UC Berkeley thinking about discourse ethics under Jürgen Habermas, right. Under this Mm. kind of way of thinking. What always attracted me to the Frankfurt School was that it was a kind of this shotgun marriage between Marx and Freud. And and to be clear, I'm not a Marxist, I'm not a I'm not a Freudist, which a Freudian, if you will, but the what attracted me was Marx his his analytical point of view was structural, right? It was like, how do we right. look at systems and deep time and history? Yep. Now where he went with that and where others have really taken it, I don't totally jive with. But then Frankfurt School also was like, but it's not just about this. It's also about the inner life of the actual human agents, right? This is where mm-hmm. the Freud part came in um, and the psychodynamic. And and so that kind of early point of view that I was introduced to this idea of that systems and inner can work together and can be in dynamic tension and create something new is in many ways embedded in a, in a kind of what does it mean to long path, right? So yeah. when you think about the work that we do here at Long Path, so Long Path Labs is the entity that I run with a small and growing staff around the country that's doing a bunch of great work, which, which, we'll, which I'll talk about in a second. You can very clearly see a lot of different roots in Long Path in this technology, the Frankfurt School being one of them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Being, being in time, right? I mean, this right. was our... You know, but look, the, the so where where the, the, to you know to talk about the long path story though, and kind of the the work that we do, and and you you just touched on this with with the last question is, I start the kind of long path story, and this is kind of like you know eat your own dog food, like <laughs> own what it is. Like when I talk about my own story, I don't start when I was born in the in in the nineteen seventies. I start when my father was born, right? Because mm. that is what starts my story. And specifically, you know, my dad was born in the nineteen twenties in Europe, and within oh uh, gosh, a couple of months, uh, he was born in Poland. Within a, within a couple of months of the German invasion, his town, the ghetto, was created. His uh, very quickly was separated from his mom and sisters. They eventually were sent to Auschwitz, where they were killed. My father and another brother and his dad stayed in, were, were, were kept in the ghetto. My father's father was killed in front of him by the Nazis. My dad, that next night, escaped the ghetto and joined the Jewish underground and was 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 fought in the forests of Poland for several years, did a bunch of stuff after the war, went through, after the war, through Europe to Cuba, to Mexico, where he met my mom, who was an American 
artist who had studied and been a student of Buckminster Fuller. Wow. And so when we think about like how these things come together, you know, my father's story is about making decisions that lead to a better outcome. His, for, for my father, the end of World War II, and he told me this, uh, he passed away, unfortunately, several, many years ago. He said, World War, we didn't, we, we did not win World War II when, you know, there was a declaration of the end of war in 1945. He's like, we won World War II when I had children. That's when mm. we won World War II. Um, and th- this is the way we were raised. And at the same time, my mom, is a, as an artist and a, and a student of Bucky and spent a lot of time with him, I was raised in this interesting kind of anti-authoritarian, pro-open society, but systems thinking home, right? So that, that sets the stage for some parts of Long Path. The next thing that happens is when I'm, I mentioned I was at UC Berkeley in the 90s, I used to spend a lot of time at this small little entity called Global Business Network, which a lot of people didn't know about. But it was folks like Peter Schwartz, who was a futurist, uh, Stuart Brand, who did the Whole Earth Catalog. Mm-hmm. And it was this small 15-person company that was like, this is where the big organizations went to find out about the future. They would bring in people like Peter Gabriel and Brian Eno, and they did this, these massive futuring exercises, they, you know, scenarios for South Africa after apartheid, stuff for Singapore. And I was introduced to that work uh, in the 90s. So I, I kind of go from being born in Mexico with my mom and dad in those stories, and then kind of thinking about discourse ethics, the Frankfurt School, and these different kind of different forms of analysis. And then I start kind of getting introduced to all of these futurists. And... What I realized pretty early on, especially having got the dot-com boom, uh, the first one in San Francisco was the idea of the future, uh, and I say that in the singular term, and I put that in quotes, more and more since I'd say probably the late 90s has really, when people say the future, what they're talking about is a singular technology dominated faraway realm mm-hmm. uh, where technology defines and and technological evolution defines what the future will be. And so everything kind of wraps around that. And when I was at this point with my company just a couple of years ago and thinking about, you know, I wrote this piece for Wired, but I was thinking, okay, like, it's great. I'll do off the side of my desk. I still have to do what I'm doing because I have staff and I have a family. And then after the 2016 election, I realized that what we were seeing in the country was and not to bring everything back to what I work on, but was a symptom of not just short termism, but an existential disconnection from tomorrow. Yeah, and and a reaction of what happens not just in this country, but but globally, and in many ways, the kind of culmination of Enlightenment discourse and dialectics. Right, we have gotten to the point where the future, the singular future is dominated by this idea of kind of a transhuman singularity, right? That is the religion of Silicon Valley. And what ends up happening is when you focus solely on technological evolution, you crowd out moral evolution, right? So I spent a lot of time when I was at GBN and at Berkeley and dot com thinking about like, you know, Moore's law, right? Like chips will keep getting smaller and faster. And I kept trying to figure out like, where's like the, the quote unquote, name some famous old white dead philosopher, living <laughs> philosopher law that says like every 
five years, we have a doubling of moral evolution. <laughs> Quite the opposite yeah. in general. And yeah. so I kept kind of looking for it. It turns out there wasn't one, right? You are correct. There is not one. <laughs> there is not one. If anything, there's a degradation. As, as the Moore's law, you know, there's a kind of an inverse correlation between technology getting faster and moral going down, right? We still have moments of kind of disequilibrium where certain movements can, can break through, thankfully, but there isn't... Yeah. That, you know, imagine a venture capital industry like we have in Silicon Valley, and not just about money, but about the connections and everything that makes the valley so dynamic. It's a place that I've lived and have been. Imagine that, but for like morality, right? So unless, instead of software code, it's like moral codes. And in 2016, realizing that we didn't have that and talking to some very kind of folks that are much smarter and more empathic and full of wisdom than I am. Uh, they're like, you know what? Like, stop waiting for it. Just do it. Uh, so long story short, I kind of like wrapped up the projects of the company, took some staff with me, and we created Long Path Labs, which is this entity that is trying to figure out both analytically what is going on, but then how do we solve for it, recognizing that there is no one solution. There is no silver bullet. It's silver buckshot. At the same point, this question is so big. The problems we have, these wicked problems we have are so large. How do you create interventions, right? We, we take this from epidemiology. Like there are certain interventions, like for instance, hand washing, right? right. Hand, people don't realize hand washing, especially before surgery or even uh, childbirth for the, for the doctor revolutionized the world, right? Like added decades. Yeah. Um, so what are the, what are the moral equivalents of hand washing, right? Where those things actually push us forward over time. So what often happens, what I found in the social policy realm is that folks want like the new big law or the new thing that's going to change everything. Right. And more often than not, it may change some things. I'm, I, I love laws. I love top down stuff because sometimes that's what you need. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if you're only focused on taking those things and putting them on top of and around this roughly 80,000-year-old piece of hardware known as the human, things are not going to change. So the question is, how do you change those things? How do you create better futures knowing what we know about neuroplasticity, knowing that we can change literally how our brains are shaped, right? Like we know... We know through fMRIs and MRIs that folks who practice contemplative like meditation over time can actually shrink the amygdala and dent and create density in the prefrontal cortex. Like we can do this, but it's always up to the individual to kind of do it, who wants to find a connection to something. But as a society, we haven't developed that venture capital, that, that model of how to do it. That's what we decided to do was figure out how do we do that? Because to, to think about how we want to shape tomorrow isn't about whether or not we know about blockchain or monorails or jetpacks. It's, it's how, we do, how do we say goodbye to our kids in the morning? How do we treat people on the street? How do we make decisions, very large decisions about climate, biotech, and AI, and also very small decisions? That, that's what helps us create 
the features that we want. This fits so entirely with what we've been thinking about as we prepare this season. Uh, we actually just finished an episode about how small actions brought forward in community can develop into large changes over time. And so oh, that's terrible. Cause that's, that's actually, that's the theme of this podcast too. So you should delete <laughs> that other one. I'm sure they were a great guest. <laughs> no offense to whoever that was, but that's actually oh, what we're doing. It was doing. just us. We didn't even have a guest. So we were just, yeah, you just know, rambling. So, yeah. Oh, well then you, you feel free to ramble. It's your podcast. Um, <laughs> no, th- 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 but, th- but this is it, right? Small actions, great effect. Sage. This is kind of like a mantra that we have, right? Like, what okay. are those small actions that reverberate over time? So, so let's let's. So, where does this come from? It comes from a lot of places, but let's let's bring it like we do with a lot of things back to Buckminster Fuller. So, as your listeners probably know, because your listeners are probably the smartest people on the planet. That's right, they are. Blogpath.org <laughs> forward slash donate. No, the the. <laughs> so, Buckminster Fuller was asked um, during World War II. I said, look, by, by the U.S. Navy, our ships are getting bigger and bigger, and therefore the rudders are getting bigger and bigger, but so big that we can't, we don't actually don't have the hydraulic power to, to move these 15-foot rudders to turn these ships. What do we do? You're an engineer. You're a systems guy. Figure it out. You know, how do we build more powerful hydraulics to just push these rudders in the direction that we mm-hmm. needed? What, what are the gear mechanisms? And what he came up with was, in fact, brilliant simple and the opposite of what they thought Mm -hmm. would happen, which was this idea of the trim tab. So what he actually did was he affixed a four inch winglet, if you will, to the end of the rudder. And that it turns out is the only thing you have to steer. So once you turn that four inch rudder in the opposite into the resistant force that you want, it creates negative pressure and actually pulls the rudder around for you and does all the work for you when you're moving at speed. What you need for a trim tab to work, though, is distance and forward motion. And so if we think about these interventions that I was talking about and what you guys were talking about, these small actions, these all start to become trim tabs, right? In fact, on on Buckminster Fuller's tombstone, he said, call me trim tab, right? That's like literally what he put on there. And, and the idea is, how do we think about these everyday small actions as not only cumulative, but as trim tabs to something much, much larger, whether or not you do it, anyone sees it, or you just do it for the sake of doing it, those things start to change the course of history if you give yourself the time to do it. And unfortunately, our history is always very much very much focused on that one individual who changed the course. Yeah. And those who are actually living in the moment, they're like, I don't know who that guy was. Like, I was just doing this. Like, I decided, <laughs> you know, like, and all those little things kind of add up in that way. And, yep. what, and, I, and, and the problem with that is it's a very disempowering narrative. Because it's like, well, if I don't have 14 million followers on Instagram, who am I? Like, forget it. Like, I'm just going to kind of litter and do whatever I want because I have no influence. And it's unbelievably unfortunate. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ethos that only those with following and influencers can create dramatic change. Um, I think it's hurting us in many, many ways. Yeah. So our next question relates directly back to this, which is, so one of the problems we see for doing this sort of work is scale. So how do you imagine and implement this at scale, especially when there's not a moral community at the same sorts of scale that people are trying to approach these wicked questions? Like there's no wicked size community. Yeah. So this is, you know, 
something that we think about obviously a lot. And the question is like, we believe our, our efforts to, to transform the world and, and therefore these wicked problems start with transforming individuals, right? So when we think of scale, we think we need, you know, hundreds of millions of followers to do, to push, to make X happen. And the question is though, if you really want to do something at scale, how do you take the micro and allow that, as David Bohm would say, the physicist, to almost be a hologram for larger things that you want to see? Here's the thing. We have the, the technology, the policy white papers, everything we need right now, nothing else has to change, to feed, clothe, and educate every single person on the planet. It's all there, materially. It's all there. What's in the way of doing that are humans, right? Um, and, and it's individuals. And it is, going back to what we talked about earlier, these, these moral codes and lack of social infrastructure and ways of thinking and being, and specifically, I would say, being empathic that get in the way of solving for every single of these wicked problems. It could be climate. It could be job dislocation from AI. It could be future issues around biotechnology. Every single problem we are facing is 100% solvable or at least manageable in a way that allows every single person on the planet right now to flourish. So anyone who tells you differently is trying to work a deal because the fact is we could do it right now. So the question is what stands in the way? And going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's this 80,000 year old hardware and we keep trying to put new software on top of it. And so the question is to create that scale, we have to rethink what does it mean to have uh, a civilizational operating system, like a, a civ OS, right? And the civ OS, at least in the Western tradition, is about 400 years old. But in many cultures around the world, there's different timelines. I, I, um, there was a guy who I was talking to who was a, a China scholar. And he's like, look, they're several thousand years old. They think in a, their OS is completely and totally different. But today, 2019, the civilization OS, I would argue, while it may have local manifestations, some of which are thousands of years old, net-net, there is now a globalized one, for better or for worse. And so to create that scale, we have to think about how do we build micro-level communities on the ground where we're helping people level up. And, and when I say level up, I, I, I do mean leveling up of human consciousness, which is an explosive way of thinking about what it is and who we are and why we're here, right? Because people would say, well, you know, we don't even know what consciousness is and, and what does that mean to, to level up consciousness? And I would, I would say to use terminology that um, I don't often use, but, you know, people talk about like stay woke, right? And what does that mean? It becomes to, to be aware, right? To really be aware. And by the way, the term wokeness, I won't say it has its roots in, but if you think about like Satori and enlightenment and these other things that we see from ancient wisdom, traditions, and technologies, there's a long lineage of this. So the question is, how do you scale wokeness <laughs> is you figure that out and then you can scale to solve these major wicked problems as opposed to trying to figure out how do you come up with a massive global UN or some sort of policy or framework? Right. Which, because like that yeah. inherently doesn't work. So what we have to figure out, and by the way, who, who knew how to do this extremely well for a very long time were religions. And I would say Judeo-Christian were really, really good at, at providing this. And remember, this is the, the, the part that people, you guys won't, but the part most people forget when Nietzsche said God is dead, the next part of that phrase is, and, we and have, we're all screwed. Yeah. <laughs> right? 
And so I love the enlightenment. I'm, I'm an enlightenment guy. But at the same time, we threw the baby out with the bathwater, right? What ends up happening is we do away with the order mechanism, the ordering mechanism that religion provides, rightfully so, because we did have to overcome the capital T and C church and what that what that hegemony did. And, and Gutenberg opened that up and the internet has empowered people. Da, 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 da. But at the same time, we are, and again, this goes back to 80,000 year old version of ourselves, we, we are built for meaning and purpose because meaning and purpose, when it's done in a collective, drives cooperation, right? And cooperation is what sets us apart from everything else out in the Serengeti 80,000 years ago, whereas they might have hunted in small packs, we were able to kind of communicate, hunt in packs, have people stay at home and build up a whole civilization and a culture off of that. The second thing that we did that no other species did besides cooperate at that level, was to prospect, to think about the future, to think about multiple scenarios, right? So we weren't just being reactive. And so when we think about the question of scale, we have to think about how do we level up that kind of wokeness to what we are truly capable of doing from a, from a place of cooperation, but also from a place of prospection, right? The, 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 the future is not this thing that's going to wash over us, which is what we're led to believe. Right. The futures, with a with a plural, with an S, is actually something we create. We do that at scale at the individual human level. So that's, that's how we scale into it. I'm going to jump ahead slightly to pick up on some themes you hit in this list of questions we, we had prepared here. We often think hard about the way that our religions do impact these kinds of things. And it's trivial in some sense at this point to note the ways that there have been both positive and negative effects of religion at scale. But as you said, they're also one of those really important institutions that have been, and I don't use institution in necessarily a critical sense there at all, but that have been a part of helping people to think well and to understand the world around them more deeply and broadly. And your background with the Jewish context, everything you just mentioned, we're very curious how religious ideas in particular end up influencing your thinking on these kind of futures for society and technology? So it's a great question. The, as all of your questions are, of course, um, <laughs> you're I'll so be kind. Best questions I've ever had. Longpath.org. Um, <laughs> donate. The, look, what we often talk about when we, when we talk about long path, we say it's very old wine in new bottles, right? Like, what we are talking about, being in a community, being in communities of practice that center contemplation, getting to know yourself, like your real self versus the projected self that you put out in the world and what that world tells you you should be, that delta, closing that delta between who you really are and who the world says you should be, that goes back thousands of years, closing that that delta in, in at, the, at the deepest levels of the kind of the esoteric Sufi Kabbalah, these other places, not like this is what religion is supposed to help you do, right? Is, you know, that, that, that most, as, as Herman Hesse said, that the road, the scariest road a person can take is the one that leads back to themselves. And that's kind of a foundational layer of the work that we do at long path, but this has been around for, for thousands of years. Right. And then being in dialogue, because you can't do this, so, so in my 20s, I, I did a lot of stuff in the Soto Zen tradition and Japanese, and I spent time at Green Gulch outside of San Francisco. Um, and that was kind of like my school, right? Like I was raised Jewish, but like that, that spoke to me. 
And I was, I was having a conversation, and it, this will sound super cliche, but it was with a guy who was one of the founders of Netscape Navigator, right? Mm. And so any listener under the age of like 38 has no idea what we're talking about, so go Google that. <laughs> or Alta Vista that, which will really make it sound, <laughs> oh my God, I just totally aged myself. And you laugh, so you're old too. I, pref- I prefer Ask Jeeves, thank you. Yes, Jeeves, yes. <laughs> Ask Jeeves or Lycos or any, this is a joke that means nothing to most people. To, to um, most people, yep. It's most true. people so just catch, they're like, I'm going to fast forward 15 seconds all these guys keep laughing at their oldness. So one of the guys who developed Netscape, and we were sitting in a yurt, as one does in Northern California. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, because because I was, at the time, I, as I mentioned, you know, I was reading a lot of Habermas's work on discourse ethics. And I said, well, you know, I'm doing all this sitting in community with, with, with my, my brothers and sisters within, within the Zen community. And I'm in this dialogue with myself. And he goes, look, Discourse ethics really only become what they can become when you take that dialogue that you're having in your head. Understand the, that that voice in your head is a narrative that probably did not come from you, but it came from all sorts of external realities, be it Madison Avenue or your parents or culture. And yes, you can sit here and get to know it and note that in the emotions that arise, but you really don't start to become a whole person until you're in dialogue with others, right? So in developing kind of this long path methodology and the work that we do, there was there's this contemplative, like know yourself, watch yourself, watch those emotions, but then you need to wrestle and not just wrestle in yourself, but wrestle with someone else. And the best way to do that is in dialogue, dyads, triads, in groups and, and have those conversations. So we see this And then the third level is at some point, you also have to do some writing and intellectual and kind of cognitive reframing work. So that third, and I should mention it because you alluded to this, that second thing of being in dialogue, I took right out of yeshiva, right? That's the yeshiva model. So I spent time in Jerusalem and I studied with some folks at Pardeus, which is this organization. Most dynamic learning was in dialogue, kind of wrestling back and forth with a dialogue partner. So you kind of take a little bit of the Zen, you take the yeshiva model, and then there's this third component, which is more of kind of academic cognitive. So one of the guys on our, uh, one of the folks on our advisory board, a guy named Hal Hirschfield, brilliant guy at UCLA. And it turns out, and, and I'll condense the research, but if you get people to write a letter to their future self, you actually see changes in their brains within an fMRI in under two weeks, right? Their connection to their future self by writing a letter to their future self. So sometimes you have to be contemplative. Sometimes you have to be in dialogue. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you actually have to do things that are rewiring in a very transparent way. And so it turns out it's not about getting the letter that you write to your future self a year from now. It's a very act of doing it and imaging a different future and having a connection to it. So all three of those elements, those things that we see from ancient wisdom technologies, but back-ended by neuroscience, behavioral ac- economics, psychology, these are all our, our advisors in the research we do, we take all of that and then implement it on the ground. So we're not a think tank. We're this kind of long path lab is an action tank because we want to be in the world. So what does that look like? We are now, uh, I think, in probably just over three dozen WeWorks in New York and DC. And we're running something called Long Path Gather, uh, longpath.gather, and you can find that at the website. And these will be growing. And our intention is to have several hundred of these within the next two years, not just around the country, but around the world. And what you can think of it as is it takes a little bit of what we've seen from Quaker or from Sundays or Saturdays, a temple, shul, all the, the church, these different places where we gather. But 
we take the deity out, right? The issue that most people have with connecting to higher levels of awareness of themselves and maybe something even bigger than the universe and us is that our parents, God, were, was always looking down and we always, had, we always had to perform for our parents, God. And the question is, we want to perform, we want to be good people, but the idea of doing it for this bearded, usually white dude on a golden throne isn't going to appeal to most people, especially millennials. What is going to appeal, though, is doing the good work that needs to be done to level themselves up, to be better humans. At the same time, though, instead of playing to this omnipotent God, we have an ethical both, I would say, duty and responsibility, but really an opportunity to play to future generations, right? So the real question that we're asking ourselves at Long Path is, how do we become the ancestors the future needs, right? Because we often don't think of ourselves as ancestors. We think of ourselves as peak civilization. We're the tip of the spear. (laughs) We're not the tip of the spear, Right. We could be. We could be the very end. We could actually be the generation <laughs> that ends the whole thing. Yeah, we sure hope not, but we could. What we want to do is we want 10, 15, 20,000 years from now, them to look back and be like, wow, they did it. Those were amazing ancestors. And so when we think about our religious traditions that center the idea that you plant a tree, even as an old man, every wisdom tradition has a story. Of, some, of an elder planting a tree. Someone comes up to him and goes, why are you planting the tree? You'll be dead before the fruit and the shade. And they say, because someone planted it for me. That We have lost that in culture. It's, it's a me, 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 now, now, now culture, right? Where I can open my phone and order anything right away, right now. We need to think about these religious perspectives, how they have informed us, how they have not helped in as many areas as we would want and think about what it is it specifically around millennials and others and the folks that are this who are going to be inheriting the world that was created over the past several decades that's going to have a lot of these issues come to fruition how are we setting them up for success and giving them these communities of practice that don't say here's the dogma that say here's the doctor but instead say we want what's best for you because what's best for you now actually leads to what's best for future generations, right? And so right now they're going to yoga and CrossFit and SoulCycle. That's amazing. We think there are models that can push that even further to make them the ancestors of future needs, right? So that's Long Path Gather. So you'd ask the question earlier, like, how does Zorba hit the road? That's how it's over. We're also doing stuff in Washington, D.C. We anchored a new entity going up called Future Congress. And I won't bother you with the, the, the policy, esoterica, but it it turns out that Congress doesn't actually have an entity that helps it think about the long-term future since the mid-90s, since the Office of Technology Assessment was defunded under Newt Gingrich in the contract with America. So we're trying to get that refunded. It's actually on the books as an organization. It doesn't even require new law. So at the same time we're doing Long Path Gather, we're also doing that. At the same time, we're also working with very large, high-leverage companies to kind of think about how they do what they do, still be profitable, but ensure that narratives that are such a potent force in society, and we've seen this again for thousands of years, are the kind of narratives that move us forward. So an example of that, we're we're engaging with this publisher right now, and all their best-selling books on the future are always dystopian. And so in the conversation that we were having with them, I said, look, it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a great athlete at all, but I said, but I, what I learned very early on is like, you hit what you aim for, right? And so if every narrative we put out is dystopic, 
Like we start to bend in that direction. What would a trilogy of books? And I don't mean to knock the Hunger Games or these. They're 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 great for what they are. But what would a, what would a trilogy look like? For instance, that isn't the end of days or some. There wasn't some massive terrible event, but instead it's a trilogy about like the Great Transformation or the Awakening 3.0, and we actually just solved it. We solved a lot of these issues by leveling ourselves up. And you can still have the same teenage angst and drama and other things that you put into those <laughs> books because that's always going to be with us, hopefully, thankfully, or else it be very boring. But what would that look like? So those are all the areas. And by the way, you, you know, the, 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 the idea, the three pillars of long path, this idea of futures thinking, a plurality as opposed to a singular future, the idea of transgenerational empathy. So not just caring for your own time, but for those other times, what it means to be a great ancestor. And finally, this idea of telos, right? This this having a, a goal that is bigger than yourself that helps define your, your values. These are the kind of three pillars of this methodology. And as I say, the three of those, I'm sure what you guys picked up on and what your listeners picked up on is that is the actual, those are the three conceptual and plot point pillars of the Exodus story from the Old Testament. This is, the, you know, or Plato's cave, ana- or Plato's cave analogy, right. or the hero's journey. But the reason Exodus is so important in this, and again, I'm not, I'm not religious. I'm just looking at these things of what works is the Exodus story is not about the hero's journey. It's not about the individual, right? It really isn't. Moses doesn't actually enter the land of milk and egg. It's about a collective, about a people. And in a society that we live in today, the hero's journey is always about Luke Skywalker, right? It's always about this one individual who triumphs and then therefore, and we, we got, and we talked about this earlier, and that becomes the whole thing. The reality is for us to get to where we want to get to as a species, a decade out, several decades out, several centuries out, we're going to have to, we, we need to recognize and act on the fact that we are all in this together, right? This, this exodus from what got us here won't get us there, right? This, this bigger exodus journey has to be collective, has to be at scale, but we all have individual roles to play in that. There cannot be one technology or one politician or one religion or one app that's going to get us there, right? It's everyone moving in that direction together, recognizing though that telos-based thinking doesn't mean you actually ever get there, right? There is no, and people, many people will disagree with me, there is no kind of messianic moment where once we're there, it's fine. This is a process that universe willing, we will be struggling with for the next several hundred thousand years, right? The, the top astrophysicists we talked to say, we have several billion years left, billion with a B, left before <laughs> mm-hmm. the universe collapses on itself. Wouldn't it be a shame if we all just went away right now? We have at least another billion year run to play around and do some really interesting stuff. And that that is, that sounds very, very highfalutin, but like, that's what we have to be aiming for. So the work that we're doing at Longpath is to try and figure out how we can do that, how we can provide that social infrastructure that allows people to be their best possible self in a collective way that gets us through this intertidal moment, right? This end of this several hundred year run that we've been on since probably the 1400s that has served us in many ways well, but isn't going to get us through these next several years and these challenges, next several decades. We need something, we need something bigger. We're not, I'm not saying long path is that something bigger. I'm saying it's a process of methodology to move through this intertidal so that we can collectively build what that next thing is. Hmm. That's interesting. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. We could talk to you for a long time, but we want to be respectful of your time and our listeners' time. And so thank you for, again, for coming on the show and for taking a flyer on coming on a show that you knew was about religion when you're not religious. Like, we Indeed. appreciate that a lot because there's a lot of people that wouldn't. Yeah, of course, listen, we're, we're, all, we're all allies on this, right? We're, we're, we're all crew on Spaceship Earth, so we have to start, we have to start <laughs> acting like it. No passengers here. So my pleasure. The music at the beginning of the episode was First Do No Harm by Kaziak. We used that song by permission, so please uh, don't use it without permission yourself. Thanks as always to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's sponsors at the Say Them Out Loud level were the one and only Nathaniel Blaney. But we do appreciate everyone who's sponsoring. And if you would like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning or longpath.org slash. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are always giving 10% of what we uh, make from those donations to the Internet Archive because the Internet is worth archiving and saving. Indeed. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at Winning Slowly, at Chris Kreicho, or at S. Caradini, or as Stephen always says it, and I always love to say it, Scaradini. Scaradini. Once again, thank you so, so much to Ari Wallach for coming on the show. We have a lot of a lot of things to cover, both in terms of agreement and disagreement, both with him, with our interseason episode that we did with Jessica Blank. Indeed. Uh, some of the points of analogy with Shannon Valor's work. Indeed. So keep your ears peeled for that in the near term. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>